Alright, we are uh, we're looking every week at the book of Leviticus, as strange as it seems sometimes, and daring uh, to consider how Leviticus shows us a God who actually wants to draw near to us. And as he, as he comes near to us, that creates all kinds of obstacles, namely our sin and our rebellion. But we see in Leviticus a God who's willing to overcome any and every uh, barrier because of His grace. Um, what, uh, what sociologists are starting to say, if you, if you read anything from them, uh, is that there is uh, something that is key to a healthy community and society. And it's something called social capital. That you can have lots of money, you can have lots of infrastructure, you can have, a, you can have good, uh, you know, good labor and workforce, but there is not what, what sociologists are calling social capital. Things are falling apart. And social capital is basically how people trust each other. And the willingness for people out of that trust to not just live for themselves but the good of the community around them. And they say, actually, that is where America is starting to fall apart. Because it's all about me, and we have, a, we have little trust for each other. Well, what Leviticus uh, 19 is going to hold out for us is the fact that when God draws near, He transforms and create a, creates a new community. A community that is actually marked by trust and love of one another. That actually is supposed to be so healthy it draws other people in. So let me, uh, let me pray. Father, um, would you help us? Uh, uh, we just uh, sang about how uh, many times uh, this world can feel disappointing. Uh, it can feel very dark. Uh, and uh, sometimes we can find that we lose hope. Um, but the resurrection of Jesus uh, means that ultimately uh, our best days are ahead of us. And so I pray as we look at how you call us to live, uh, as we uh, uh, probably what will happen is as what gets revealed is our lack of love for people, uh, we would be drawn to the God of love and grace and be transformed by your forgiveness. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here is Leviticus 19. It's on your uh, handout, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall, not do, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor." You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. When a, now, down, I'll skip down to verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. 
You shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God, uh, it stands for Okay. We're going to look at three things. The call to holiness, expression of holiness, and the power for holiness. First, the call to holiness. This is verse 1 and 2. Everything in Leviticus 19 is, describes a Christian life, if you want to use our term, rooted in this statement that God makes. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I don't even know how that hits you. I don't know how the word holiness sounds to you. But I think for many of us, that word, it smells of of smugness, of some kind of uh, arrogant uh, piety uh, that lives and talks in such a way that that feels disconnected from the real world, um, or just is bound up in some kind of isolated meditative state with high thoughts about God. Or it's just this kind of Christian word that gets thrown around that seems vague and and, and doesn't seem to have any practicality to it. But follow the reasoning of Leviticus, right? If Leviticus, what we've been saying all semester, is showing us God who is holy, and what we've seen is that He draws near to His people, then the holiness of God, it it at least means this, that that He is drawn into the life of His people intimately. If he's holy and and he's lovingly drawn to his people, then therefore holiness must mean that you are pushed into the lives of others. Right? Um, That means that however you think of holiness, it cannot be lived in isolation from other people. Impossible. God is clearly saying you cannot be holy and be isolated. Because it's drawing near to people in a real, vibrant love. Like, because God is holy. And so holy, holiness is not feeling spiritual. It's not having grand thoughts about God, that that's not a bad thing. It's actually practical. It's concrete. It's expressed summarily, as is said in Leviticus 19, and Jesus says again, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's holiness. And I would just suggest that defining holiness... Without the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, it's destructive. There's a show that used to come on that doesn't come on anymore. I actually liked it. It's called Intervention. And the whole spiel of Intervention was um, that they would follow um, people addicted to substances, whether that was alcohol, drugs, or something. And the way that the show always ended was there would be an intervention from the family with a professional counselor who did this. And so towards the end of one of, this, uh, one of these shows, it was actually a, um, a young woman, and the father was one of the key people that was going to be a part of this intervention. And so he was practicing his speech with the professional, with the counselor, and he was talking about, uh, you know, telling her that his daughter, that, listen, daughter, God loves you. You cannot outrun his love. His forgiveness is real. And the professional stepped in and said, look, that, that, that's all true. But it's not going to be helpful. And you're watching kind of like, okay, this is interesting. And he says, right now, she actually doesn't need to hear that God loves her. What she needs to hear is that you love her. And so he rewrote his speech. And then, you know, the next day, they have him sitting down uh, with his daughter. And he begins by saying this. I begin to realize I haven't told you this in a long, long time. 
Julie, I love you. And I love you a lot. And at that moment, his daughter began to cry. And at that moment, you knew she actually was going to go get help. Because she heard the words that she'd been longing to hear. Again, like, you know, I don't know the details of that. But what, what, what that counselor was communicating was this. Telling her that God loves her, if she's not experiencing love from her dad, it's not going to help. Now, I know ultimately it does, but that's the point that he's trying to drive. And there's a lot of people, I bet, in this room that are understandably skeptical of Christianity, maybe, maybe callous by it. Because you've been told by, by the church or by certain Christians who have, who have high things to say about God. But you've experienced little love from them. You've been told by people that God loves you. And yet what you've experienced from them is kind of an uh, extended arm at length, uh, very uh, uh, shallow love. And it's destructive. It's destructive to speak of a God who loves you but you not love that person. And Leviticus 19 is saying that any idea of holiness that you have, any display of holiness that you think, whatever that is, if it makes you arrogant, or if it keeps you from being deeply loving to people, it's not holiness. Because it's not who God is. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, his his famous chapter on love and describing it, you know what he says? He ends up saying, you can have all these pious things that are true about you. You can speak in tongues. You can understand great things about God and and, and these spiritual matters. And then he says this, if you lack love, it's nothing. It's nothing. And so first, that's the call to holiness. Second, okay, so how is this holiness expressed? And we're just going to quickly walk through the categories that holiness are expressed. Now, I want you to consider this. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're a skeptic tonight, I want you to consider the description of a holy community. Because I think even if you're skeptical of Christianity, if you, if you listen to the things that are described about what God wants, don't you at least say that's the way a community should be? And if it's the way that you think a community should be, could that not be because it's a reflection of the nature of who God is? That He is holy. And therefore, a reflection of how you were made to be. And so, look at, let's look at the specifics. There's four categories. It, well, there's more than that, but that, this one's what Leviticus 19 discusses. First, he says, holiness is loving with your possessions, right? Verse 9 through 10. Um, Leviticus 19 assumes holiness means that you love your neighbor and your community with the things that you have. Holiness means being a sharer. And in the agrarian culture of Israel, right, what that meant was, he says, do not reap your harvest all the way up to the end of the field. Or do not, do, do not pick up all the grapes of the vineyard. Leave some on the ground. Why? For the poor and for the needy so that they can gather. Or for the foreigner. If you ever read the book of Ruth, this is what Boaz does. He's a great example of this. And see, in an agrarian uh, economy, your crops, your field, that was your assets. That, that was your, in a sense, security. And God is saying, my people are going to be known by this. They build margins into their life so that they can share with the poor, so that they can share with the needy. They intentionally make assets available for the needy. And so God is saying that holiness means this. 
that my people build a regular lifestyle that involves sharing the margins of their life with people in need. Because they know it's a broken world and they want to ease the burdens to others. Uh, people, actually, people who actually knew uh, C.S. Lewis well, right, the, the great Christian apologist, the writer, people who knew him well realized uh, an odd thing about him. That though, at least for his time, he was, he was relatively wealthy uh, because he had a good job and he sold quite a few books, they realized that actually he always seemed to be on pins and needles uh, about money. And it was always odd to people. But when C.S. Lewis died, what was revealed was that he had always given away two-thirds of his income from both royalties of books and his salary to care for widows, orphans, and the poor. That's how much margin he carved out of his stuff. And look, I realize that some of this, especially if we're talking about money, it feels like uh, I'm depositing a seed for the future, and that's fine. But the, the older that you get, the more internal and external pressure you're going to feel to see your possessions as yours. Something you earned. Because so much in us and everything around us is saying this. Time, talents, money, it's what ensures your security. It's what's going to make you okay. And so you've got to hoard it. It's yours, you've earned it, it's the only way you're going to make it. And God is saying, my people are going to be known by their generosity. Because I am their security. I am their Lord who provides for them. And so look, a countercultural community of Christians would look like this. That instead of our first impulse being, let me stake a claim around what's mine, and if there's a little extra, maybe I'll give. That instead our first impulse is, let me see how I can give and share with those who are in need. Let me see how I can be a blessing to the needy. And here's, here's the deal. You read the description, there's no, there's no explanation of which poor were qualified to, to, to receive this charity. The only thing that qualified them was that they were needy. And that means that it, it would really be countercultural if a raise in your salary one day didn't mean that you had to raise your expenses. You could actually raise your giving. To RUF. I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. You can do that. Um, and that's where I'd, I'd even press you that like what feels like it might be in the future, you're actually setting patterns in college right now. Like one of the lies that we believe is that, is that college is this four years that's disconnected from the rest of your life. But the way that you're living right now are the patterns that are going to follow you, follow you after this place. And you know what your most precious possession or commodity probably is in college? It's probably not money. It's time. And so let me ask you, are you building margins into your time, into your schedule, to spend time with and for the needy? Not just for, not just for things that will build your resume, but for the good of other people, whether others notice or not. It's convicting to think about so first, your possession. Second of all, he says, holiness involves being loving with your words, verse 11 and 12. It means that we have to be truthful. This is speaking in the context of a business in court, and yes, we're told not to steal. But look at the next few phrases, because he connects dishonesty with stealing, especially in business and courtroom setting. 
So what he's saying is that lying and stealing always go together because they're both forms of falsehood. And again, if we're to be imitators of God who is holy, then we are to be people of truth. Why? Because God's Word can always be trusted. You can bank your life on the Word of God. It's absolutely trustworthy. And to be a holy community means that our words have to be trustworthy. And I think in our age, I really think even more countercultural than generosity, I think the most, most countercultural community in our culture will be one that is truthful and loves truth. I mean, I, I just, like, have you not felt the weariness in your own life and in our culture from whether it's national news to just, to just the world that we swim in? It just doesn't feel like anybody can be trusted anymore. It feels like there's always something else behind, behind what's actually being said. And you realize it fractures society. Because it is impossible for any relationship to be healthy if there is not trust. Impossible. It's, it's, it's impossible for any community to be healthy if there is not trust. And, I would, and again, would, would you consider how lying and deceit, it's just in the water around us. We're just used to it. It may not be explicitly taught, but it's assumed. Like, think about your schoolwork. Like, cheating in school, which is deceitful, like, on the street level, it's just an assumed, omnipresent, justifiable reality if you're going to make it in college. Almost nobody questions it. And God says, no. My people are going to traffic in truth, even if it's costly to themselves. Because, because this is a community of people that are supposed to be countercultural and be truthful because it's not about me, it's about the good of my neighbor. And that's the lie. We think it's just about us. But more generally, it also means that our, that our words are to be truthful with, with each other. And our highest value, and I, this is me too, is we just don't want to offend anybody. And so truth-telling has been sacrificed on the altar of people-pleasing. And it's actually killing our relationships. We're afraid of people's opinions about us. So that if we tell the truth, we'll be lonely. And so I'd rather just lie. But here's what happens. The less that we tell each other the truth, the more our friendships are honestly just a a cheap imitation rather than the real thing. Because real relationships are raw and exposed and truthful. Not out of brutality, but out of love for one another. Because lies destroy relationships because it, it means we're hiding from each other. And so there's, there's uh, love with our possessions, there's love with words, and there's lastly love with, uh, or, or sorry, then there's love with actions. Verse 13 and 14. There are these specific commands about not oppressing your neighbor, being fair and just in what you pay. So what does it mean to oppress? The way that he defines oppression here is not giving an appropriate wage for work. And these days, there are a lot of day workers where you'd stand out and, and wait for somebody to hire you to work in your vineyard or something like that. And then they were to pay you a day's wage, which would be your daily bread. And he's saying, if you refuse to pay or you don't pay what, uh, what was agreed to, it's oppression. And you can see how fracturing to a community that would be. Because day workers were vulnerable. They were desperate. And they were easy to take advantage of. And God says, my community is going to be known not for oppression, but for honoring your word. 
and for, and for looking out for the disadvantaged and the needy. My people don't back out of, the commit, out of their commitments just because it makes their life easier. Because it's about other people. And what, this, this is like a shocking thing to consider. It is for me too. What if you lived like you actually couldn't back out of your commitments? Right? Text messaging is the easy backdoor way out of commitments. I can, just, I can just get out of it and I don't have to deal with anybody. But man, what if, it, what if there's a community that actually honored its commitments and honored what it was said it was going to do? Because follow the reasoning of Leviticus. If holiness is outward, if holiness is about loving other people, then what happens when we turn it in on ourselves and make life about us? What we'll do is we'll either commit to anything and everything, but only follow through on that which we think will personally benefit us. Or we won't ever commit to anything because we're so scared we're going to miss out on the best opportunity that will benefit me. But see, God is saying real love and holiness is about other people. And so we commit to keep our word, not because I've figured out it's worth it for me, but because it's for the benefit of others. And especially look out for the weak and vulnerable. That's what, that's what uh, Leviticus is talking about in verse 14 when he talks about don't curse a deaf person or, or, or don't put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. Why is he saying that? Because if you curse a deaf person, he will not, he, he'll, he will not hear you. If you, put a, if you put a stumbling block in front of a, a blind person, that person will not know what you did. And what he's saying is love is completely other-centered in your actions. So much so that, right, if you cursed a deaf person, you wouldn't be blamed for it. If you removed an obstacle from a blind person, you also wouldn't get credit for it because he wouldn't know. But that's what he's saying, that real love does stuff simply for the benefit of others, whether, whether you get the credit or not. Hmm. Now that's hard. And then lastly... It involves loving with the heart, right? Up until this passage, honestly, every well-meaning religious person, this is like a dream. You just gave me like a list of to-dos and and don't, uh, you know, to-do, not do. I can do that, kind of. But then Leviticus says this, these three little words, in your heart, right? And what Leviticus acknowledges, what the rest of the Bible acknowledges, that you can do the right thing, but just be wearing a mask. Just be putting on a show, but there being no real love of your neighbor. Because it's just about you. Which means it's not true holiness. And he says that if you find yourself hating your neighbor, right, in your heart, he says you need to go work that out. You need to go talk it out with a person. Because there needs to be integrity. Integrity comes from the uh, uh, word integer. What's an integer? It's a whole number. It's not fractured. And what God is saying is that loving your neighbor means loving him wholly, not in a fractured way. It means being the same in public that you are in private. Because if I'm different in public than I am in private, I'm fractured. Or it means if I'm hating you in my heart, but I show you a face that says everything's okay, it's fractured. And he's saying you need to go work it out with the person. And that's when you realize for a lot of us, we're nice, but we have little love for people. Because it's just messy. And so consider the ways that, that Leviticus just said holiness is expressed. Loving with your possessions, being truthful, 
in words and transactions, not using people or taking advantage of the weak, but, but being true to your word and doing things from the heart. I think anybody would say, yes, that's the community I want to be a part of. And that'd be breathtakingly refreshing. And honestly, it's so simple that if you followed my five-year-old Clark around for a day, you would probably hear him say all of those things. Not that he would actually do them, but here's what he would demand. Hey, share. Hey, you need to tell the truth. Be fair. And I'm sorry. Like, even a five-year-old gets it. The concepts are easy. Then why is it so difficult? And I'll end here. Because the power for holiness is something that's got to be deep within us. See, the concepts are easy to understand, and almost everybody would agree that these are great principles, but the reason that it's so hard, are you ready? Is fear. Rebellious fear. 1 John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Which means that fear, you can reverse it, fear will cast out love, right? And see, if true holiness is perfect love of your neighbor, then what's going to cast that out is fear. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, Adam is in a garden, and he's holy, and Satan shows up and he utters a vicious lie. And what he says is, you can't trust God. You can't trust that he's for you. He's not looking out for you. He's not holy. He doesn't love you as he loves himself. And therefore, Adam, you've got to look out for yourself. You've got to be independent of God. And when Adam did that, sin entered the world, and that lie has never gone away. Satan's still telling that lie. The world around us pushes that lie, and especially the sin remaining in me and in you. Because here's the deal. Deep down, here's what I want you to hear. Deep down, all of us. This is, what you, this is what you and I really believe. You believe no one will look out for you except for you. Deep down, that's what you believe. If I don't look out for me, nobody else will. And so we're afraid. Right? Why do we not share? Because of fear. I have to look out for me. I don't really trust that God is for me and provide what I need... And so I don't think he's going to come through. So I'm not going to share. I trust no one but myself. Why do we not tell the truth? Because we're afraid. I have to look out for me. If I don't cheat on my test, my future is in peril. If I tell my a truth to a friend, rather than to just manage their opinion of me, I'll be alone. And nobody's going to look out for me but me. Why do we not honor our word and our actions? Because we're afraid that we'll miss out. I can't commit to something because if something better comes along, I'll miss the opportunity to move forward professionally or socially or financially. And somebody's got to look out for me and I'm the only person that will. And it's our fear and our rebellious independence from God that's underneath so much of our our lack of love. Because fear poisons our love. And maybe now you see the, the key to the power. Because how often have we seen in Leviticus, how many times did God in in these verses say, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. See, the radical selfless love that's being described, if it's holiness, then it has to be a picture of God's heart. If he says, love your neighbor as yourself, what he's saying is, you know what my heart is like? I love my neighbor as myself. With a deep, ferocious, and gracious love. 
And that's supposed to begin to cast out fear. Along with this, um, there's a story that, that went around the news a couple years ago. It's about an 11-year-old um, uh, named Phil Milt, Mick who uh, came home one day. Uh, he'd been having bruises, and he'd been telling his mom, you know, they'd been falling at the playground and all kinds of things. And finally, one day in tears, he told his mom the truth, uh, that he was being bullied at school. Mom was just sick, obviously, and... Uh, and uh, I think it was on Facebook or something that she, she went public with her cry. I don't, I don't recommend that, by the way. But at some point, uh, a family friend of hers uh, got, got word of this. And the family friend of hers uh, was uh, the head of a biker gang. And he called her and said, you want us to take care of this? And she said, sure. And so he actually called the principal of the school and he worked all this out and he got it approved. And on, on Monday, he had sent out this message to all his friends and told them the story and said that they're going to meet at this restaurant at 7 o'clock because they're going to escort Phil to school. And that morning, 50 bikers showed up in their jackets, you know, cut off sleeves, all that. And they escorted Phil to, to school, rode him around the parking lot, and Phil never had bruises anymore, ever. <laughs> Why? Because what happened was someone powerful came along and said, he's with us and we're for him. And all of a sudden, the fear from Phil got cast out. The only way that you and I will ever begin to be holy is this, that you are absolutely assured of God's love for you. You will be holy to the extent that you experience and know how ferocious His loving grace is towards you. How do you know it? The cross. Jesus goes to the cross and takes the one thing that we should fear, which is hell, separation from God, right punishment for our independence. Why? So that He can bring you into His family. So you can have His name. So you can have the same love that He has from the Father you now have. It means the Lord of this universe is looking out for you. He loves you. He loves you. And that has to begin to take away fear. We love only because Christ loved us. He's with you. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, Leviticus 19.